This podcast is paid for by Kindrel. Whether it's to receive a parcel from overseas, take public transport, or use an FPOS machine, Kindrel helps businesses imagine things differently. Kindrel designs, builds, manages, and modernizes mission-critical technology systems that the world depends on every day. With an ecosystem of partners and intelligent technology practices, Kindrel unlocks new possibilities to drive your business forward. Discover more at kindrel.com. I'm Seamus Byrne, coming to you from Gundungra land, and this is the Tech Pulse podcast, presented by Guardian Labs and paid for by Kindrel. The Tech Pulse podcast is produced on Gadigal land. Turbulence is at the heart of economic forecasts today. Geopolitics, climate, ongoing COVID-19 impacts are all painting an uncertain future that requires fast-thinking leadership to navigate the challenges and the opportunities within and around our businesses. For all the talk of transformation in recent years, the Australian economy is actually a long way behind the world when it comes to embracing new ideas and opportunities. From hybrid working environments to skills challenges and enabling new opportunities and innovation, how do we create the conditions for staff, for businesses and for innovators to create a more robust Australian economy? This week, we're joined by two expert thinkers to explore what Australia needs to plot an innovative course through the 2020s. I'm joined by Matt Boone, the Senior Director of Strategic Research at ADAPT Insights Research and Advisory, and Murray Herps, Director of Entrepreneurship at University of Technology, Sydney. Also coming up later in the show, we'll be joined by Kindrel's Director of Government Relations and Innovation Strategy, Maria McNamara, who will analyse the relationship between industry and government in the race to build the jobs of the future. Thank you both for joining us. Great to be here. Great to be here. Now, uh, Matt, I'll start with you. I'd love your thoughts on, you know, is there a better understanding of digital transformation in the business world today, given the past two years, or has the idea become confused or been changed by the pandemic? Okay, it's a great great question to kick off, actually, Seamus, because, you know, I've talked to a lot of organisations, and I think one thing has, has remained constant over the past two to three years when it comes to digital transformation and that constantly is that there's still no real clear understanding, I think, for you know exactly what does it mean. For some organizations, it's all about you know, how can we digitally transform to drive greater operational efficiencies through things like high levels of digitized processes and systems. For others, it's how do we digitally transform to deliver differentiated sort of customer and employee experiences. So For many people, it's many different things. What really is clear is that businesses we talk to recognize the need to transform. They have to transform whatever that looks like. And the question that leadership teams and boards are increasingly asking, um, and generally, remember, this is coming from fairly low levels of digital savviness in board and leadership teams based on research that ADAPT's done. It's the question they're asking is, show me value, right? What is the value of any digital transformation initiative. And when we think about digital transformation, how can it really positively impact the organization's key business priorities and ultimately the bottom line? So I think as we head into 2023, in terms of is there a better understanding, um, digital transformation, I think for many organizations, is kind of a given. It's just what we need to do. Yet, ADAPT research actually shows that the best Australian organizations are perhaps 50 to 60% overall digitized. So we have a long way to go. Um, They recognize they have to do it. I don't think necessarily there's a better understanding 
but there's an overall greater expectation that whatever they do to transform will drive really clearly aligned value to the business priorities. Mm. Now, um, Murray, obviously you've got uh, experience there at uh, UTS, and so you're working with you know a lot of, I guess, young and emerging thinkers in this space. How did they think about the range of new job opportunities that are in the market, and how is that sort of informing their their learning choices? It definitely is. Uh, that's a hard answer to follow, Matt, uh, by the way, but I'll do my best. Uh, firms exist because of con- uh, transaction cost. So uh, people, when it makes more financial sense to put a team together, that happens. And when it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And as technology gets better, transaction cost goes down. And so naturally, you end up with a larger number of smaller companies as technology gets better. And that's what we're seeing. This have to look around you to see the changing nature of work and people creating their own jobs rather than wanting to go into jobs. Uh, five years ago, we asked incoming UTS students whether they wanted to start a startup or join a startup and 39% of them said yes. Uh, Last year, we asked a more pointy question of, do you want to do a startup of your own? And it's now 57% of people saying yes. So that's brand new day one students coming through. So there's a changing opportunity. There's a changing desire in students. And simultaneously, you look at the technology, and it's never been more powerful in terms of creating your own solutions or getting them adopted by the world. Um, And I think that this creates a new set of problems where effectively we're living in a world where there's infinite opportunity for people uh, and infinite capability and infinite kind of ability to learn what they need. uh, And they now have a new problem of deciding what to do or finding their path. Uh, So happy to help (laughs) some of them in finding that path. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, sort of, Matt, obviously, it's not all about creating new companies. So, you know, how, how do we encourage leaders of traditional businesses to embrace change and see that value in transformation? Uh, and in particular, I guess, how do we ensure that transformation leads to tech that actually enables people to work smarter together? Mm-hmm. It, it's not necessarily about creating new companies, you say, but it is about creating or cultivating a new culture of innovation, right, within um, traditional sort of businesses. As you said, Murray, there's this great desire to sort of innovate at that young age as well. But what does that then translate to from a business culture point of view? So many technology and business leaders I'm speaking with at the moment are really asking, how can we reinstill the culture of the organization over so much change and turmoil? But when we have those conversations, I sort of come back and say, well, hang on a minute, what's the culture of two years ago, the right culture for today? Um, So so in many ways, I think it's time to reconsider what culture looks like and what that means as we think about evolving, not creating a new company in many ways. And I think we need to align transformation increasingly um, to modernization and then to innovation. Um, I firmly believe that separately, these three things can achieve, you know, perhaps some things, but I think all sort of combined together, they can help businesses not really just transform, but ensure They have the ongoing flexibility and indeed resilience to evolve and pivot as market conditions. And to your point, Murray, as people and employee conditions demand that change as well. And we've conducted a lot of extensive research over the past 18 months or so at ADAPT, the outcomes of which we're going to launch early in 2023. But one of the outcomes has shown that companies with that and those higher levels of modernization are ultimately innovating much more aggressively. And this is demonstrated via um, accelerated levels of revenue, 
derived from products and services released in the past three years. The point around this is that if at the end of the day, we can show the business that transformation leads to innovation, then that then leads to demonstrable increased revenue and profitability. They will not expect transformation or demand we transform at the end of the day. Yeah. This podcast is paid for by Kindrel. Whether it's to receive a parcel from overseas, take public transport, or use an FPOS machine, Kindrel helps businesses imagine things differently. Kindrel designs, builds, manages, and modernizes mission-critical technology systems that the world depends on every day. With an ecosystem of partners and intelligent technology practices, Kindrel unlocks new possibilities to drive your business forward. Discover more at kindrel.com. Uh, look, now, Murray, how do we actually encourage and nurture that next generation of entrepreneurs without kind of accepting the idea that most of them are actually going to fail? Yes, I hate that as a concept, if, if you can excuse the word, uh, because the idea that we're going to send a lot of people into this compromising position of being entrepreneurs uh, and not care about the outcomes for them is something that I can't sleep with. Um, it's I need to know that people are going into things that are good for them, are appropriate for them, uh, have precedent in terms of people with their own enablers doing similar things and getting good results. And I think this is the main risk people have in encouraging entrepreneurship, which is a lot of what we do, that if you encourage the kinds of entrepreneurship that is high risk, high reward, and maybe more relevant to other economies, then you're probably not setting people up for a great result. Um, I'm, I'm a much bigger fan of showing people local examples. Uh, so someone that has done something very recently with similar skills, similar financial resources, similar networks, uh, showing how they did those particular things and then kind of demystifying that version of entrepreneurship that makes sense for them. And I think in that case, it is just role modeling that encourages the right behavior. So it works for bricklaying, it works for tech entrepreneurship, it works for uh, so many other things. If people can see the thing that they can be, then they're more willing to do it. Yeah, you know, I'm interested, Mike, because when, when we're talking about sort of entrepreneurship and we can obviously have independent people want to be entrepreneurs, but then also fostering that entrepreneurship within our organizations as well, right? And existing businesses is, obviously, I assume, is quite important as well. So, I mean, one of the things that I've been seeing, I've done a lot around tables over the last sort of couple of months around this topic is that when we look at particularly some of our, our newer employees, those who want to really get the most out of from, a, from an innovation entrepreneurship point of view, is that they're looking for more than that sort of traditional, you know, I, I called it the uh, the Porsche test versus the purpose test, right? So it's not all about the rewards. It's about kind of buying into what the, the vision of the company as well. I'm interested when you're talking to students as well, are you seeing a great desire to sort of be part of an organization that kind of is fit for purpose with their own sort of beliefs and so on? Uh, definitely increasingly. Uh, but I'm also seeing a, a change in the kind of companies that people start. There's something nice about creating new companies because you create them in the environment that you're operating in. So instead of overlaying a purpose onto a, a much older company that makes sense in 2022, uh, for that particularly motivated person that wants to be in a company with purpose, do they start their own and set the purpose and then provide a solution to large companies or uh, join a relatively new company that's a little further down the spectrum? I think definitely seeing a lot more of that in terms of desire from people to work in those kind of companies, but also seeing a lot of people creating the companies they want to see instead. Yeah, look, that also reminds me sort of, yeah, you know, Matt, 
from what Murray's talking about there, the idea of, uh, you know, I'm sure if you're working with a, a company, you're trying to find them the right uh, case studies, the right kinds of insights that do, again, fit their market, their competitive set. Uh, so I think that's a great point sort of Murray's making about that idea of encouraging people to pursue ideas that do have a bit of a track record and not just run with anything. Yeah, and no, I think that's really good. And that's where, if, if you look at the role technology plays in driving that outcome as well, Shams, I think what, what we've certainly seen over the last couple of years is that despite these kind of remote and disparate environments we found ourselves in, technology has actually accelerated our ability to collaborate in many ways. It hasn't necessarily helped us drive greater innovation, but it has helped us connect with you know, greater communities and, if you like, cohorts in many ways. When you think about that concept of entrepreneurship, it's critical, right, that we, we collaborate and do that effectively. And I think technology has really helped us in many ways, particularly as we've seen the accelerated innovation around collaboration platforms and things like that as well. Yeah. Look, so, yeah, Matt, let's think a bit about the the wider kind of job market itself right now. I mean, what's your sense of how AI and efficiency is playing a role in the job market out there? You know, we're seeing really high employment rates right now. It certainly suggests we're not destroying jobs through technology, but, you know, is that is that just the way it's going to be or is there a lag or other factors that are at play here? Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? So I, I did a roundtable actually in um, in Melbourne about six weeks ago. And I was with uh, probably about 15 or 20 people leaders from large organizations. And as a lead into that, the conversation was really kind of focused on things have swung so far towards the employee. And there's kind of a bit of a sense that the pendulum's starting to swing a little bit back the other way, you know, just a little bit. And I think ultimately, you then think about something like AI. And, you know, we, we've seen this, I've been an analyst for many years, but over the last sort of few years, as the conversations have sort of accelerated around it, there's been so much discussion. It's going to lead to millions of job losses around the world. You know, AI is going to kind of take over so many um, different roles. But I think back many years ago, right, the PC, it was going to replace the workforce, right? Robotics was going to destroy manufacturing. But history typically shows that we then pivot to new areas. Um, the energy sector, I think, is a great example, uh, like really in transition right now. And you see the focus in a recent federal budget, for example, on reskilling workers towards sustainable power initiatives. So we do tend to pivot and evolve as we need to as technologies come along. Um, my view on this is that ultimately AI will allow us to work smarter. I think it will allow us to free up workers from monotonous and mundane tasks. I mean, that's been the um, one of the biggest challenges we've had. Um, so when I talk to organizations, whether it's AI or sort of other emerging technology areas, this is where they're really sort of considering a lot of those deployments. How can it actually help us free up resources? And not to get rid of those resources, but to ultimately develop them and redeploy them into other areas. So when we have those skill shortages, um, how can we use technologies like AI to free people up, redeploy them? Then at the same time, while that's solving our short-term challenge, it's demonstrating that we're investing in our people. Um, so it's helping us retain talent because they believe that we're focused on improving them as well. There's kind of a doom and gloom sort of scenario around things like AI. But I think if we look at it much more sort of holistically, it, it's an opportunity to allow us to evolve our workers, do things more efficiently and ultimately retain the talent and attract talent because people will want to work for employers that are actually doing that as well. Uh, I was so wrong about the future of work. Uh, and the effects of AI. I remember five years ago, uh, I did a small body of work. I spoke to 105 kind of thought leaders, industry leaders, and I asked them all, 
how do you feel about the future of work currently and that, what AI is going to do to it? And my outcome of that was no one was concerned, but everyone had a different reason for why they weren't concerned. And so I thought, okay, maybe they're just feeling their way around. Um, but I thought AI would have a much larger effect. I think what I wasn't expecting was the effect uh, technology has had on the liquidity of jobs. As you said, Matt, this at the moment, people's awareness of better opportunities, uh, their ability to slide into kind of fractional employment arrangements with a lot of different people, or this visibility of the things that people want to put out there about how their jobs are wonderful uh, and that kind of social media effect as well. And I think that's having a much larger effect than AI has had so far. It's interesting how that's going to affect people long term uh, and probably in favor of employees. But that'll be interesting as well. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to play out here, Murray, isn't there, to your point? Even when you think about AI as well, it, it is it, it does mean different things, right? And it and it has different perceived outcomes as well. We saw those examples during the pandemic. One of the liquor stores, for example, where they were using AI to help make sure they're ultimately delivering more of what the customers are looking for. When you think about some of those changes as well, that hasn't necessarily led to them needing fewer resources. They've needed more resources to therefore fulfill um, the increased demand they're getting as well. Yeah. Murray, when it comes to, again, when we're talking about trying to encourage entrepreneurship, for those who decide not to become entrepreneurs themselves, I'm curious what you think about the way you're educating people, how that skill set can actually you know, migrate into established organizations and help make meaningful contributions through the skills they've gained in the process of thinking about becoming entrepreneurs. Let me respond with an observation because uh, the thing that I see most often from the entrepreneurs that we work with uh, in terms of a specific comment is people commenting around a desire not to go back into normal work after they start working for themselves. Uh, it's just a, a lovely kind of freeing thing to be your own boss, set your own schedule, work on tech that excites you, um, basically decide what you work on for yourself instead of being told what to work on for someone else. But I think the flip side of that is you end up being this wonderful uh, self-motivated person, self-educating person that has a wonderful understanding of a particular industry and what the customers in that are asking for directly rather than being a few lines back in a company. So they end up, I think, often being quite valuable employees to other companies as well. And so I think employers are increasingly seeing that as a valuable set of experience to be able to motivate yourself, educate yourself, create new solutions on your own. And as long as they can provide the space for people like that to be useful, then I think that the rest kind of works itself out in terms of building up a CV that's more attractive to people, uh, a set of skills that's more attractive to people. And then the challenge is this adapting your own headset to being told what to do for someone else. We have these concepts, obviously, in some cities around innovation hubs and things like that, for example, where, where people can go and sort of innovate together. And, and that sort of tends to be driven by um, government rather than industry. Do you think that industry in general needs to take a bigger role in this as well? Like rather than thinking, I'm going to get the greatest minds here to drive the best products for my company. But as we think about some of the shortages and, you know, Australia continuing to lag in the innovation stakes, does business need to take more ownership of of kind of nurturing and cultivating entrepreneurs collectively? Or do you think we'll never do that because we're so competitive? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's exactly it. Um, yeah. you, you might have 50,000 staff in your organization, but how many are actually going to be mobilized at any point to solving a particular problem? Um, 
compared to all the entrepreneurs that are out there coming out with new solutions or adopting them, adapting them to a local environment. Um, I would trust that large body of people to come up with solutions better than an internal group can in most cases. And I think that then becomes a problem of how are you communicating the problems that your company has? How are you engaging with potential solutions? And are you communicating and engaging with uh, solutions well enough before you decide to create solutions internally. So yes, I, th I think it's a massive opportunity area uh, that people don't take advantage of. I'll, I'll start encouraging that when I'm meeting with, with organizations, okay? <laughs> and look, it also, you know, it, it strikes me that there can be a real clash here as well because a lot of the the ideas of the kinds of skills that these people might have uh, that you're mentioning, Murray, sound like the kind of things that a company would identify as great talent but often a large organization can slow those people down to the point where they don't feel like they're able to you know, progress or create in the ways that they want to. You know, Matt, is, is that something that you sort of encounter at all, that sense of what we say is good talent uh, might not actually be nurtured in the right way by large organizations? Absolutely. And I would say also, I think it also comes back to really how we um, ultimately measure people as well. Uh, I know we, we were sort of talking a little bit earlier on when we spoke about sort of leadership and so on. Um, what we're typically seeing right now is organizations are still measuring people on output rather than outcomes. And I think when we when we think about this new world we find ourselves in, well, that's what we really need to be thinking about. So if you think about entrepreneurs particularly, it's not about output. It's about the outcomes that they're, you know, the innovation that they're driving will actually achieve um, in, in many ways. And uh, an output might be, now, they deliver one thing in a year, but that has impact on 20% of the business, you know, that kind of thing. So kind of rethinking how we how we measure people. But I think also giving giving people, I think particularly those sort of entrepreneurial leaders, the, the ability to determine what the right outcome is as well. So not dictating to be what is the outcome. Of course, it has to align back to the business, but an entrepreneur needs that greater level of ownership. Definitely. It's a, the one career path where you work a lot without getting paid legally. Um, and so you, you need other things to compensate for that for it to be worthwhile. Yeah. Now, look, uh, we'll wrap up with a couple of last questions to uh, leave listeners with. Yeah, Matt, is there a top question you think business leaders need to explore to refocus their digital transformation so that it suits this new future of work as we're moving forward? Okay. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll come back again, Murray, when, when you were talking about things a few years ago and, and, and what you expected to happen. And from my point of view as well, if you'd have said to me five years ago, you know, you're going to have 80% of people working from home in the space of two weeks, I would have said you're mad, right? You know, it's, it's never going to happen. I kind of almost think we need to stop thinking about the future of work, right? Because the future is here and now. Um, ADAPT research shows that as we head into 2023, you're going to see anything between 40 and 50% of workers working remotely at any given time. Um, so things have changed forever now. And I think the top question that needs to be asked um, is are our leaders fit for purpose in this current world, right? We always come back to people, but are our leaders actually fit for purpose? How do we make sure that our leaders are able to measure people on outcomes rather than output as well? It's very hard in a you know, hybrid remote environment to actually measure output. Um, it's much easier to measure, I think, overall outcomes and identifying what those are. When we think about that, we then need to ask, what is the outcome we're looking for from digital transformation? And the thing that really sort of strikes me is that we 
almost need to morph from thinking about digital transformation to digital execution. And what I mean by this, um, we tend to think on digital, digital transformation as something we do, then we, you know, we tick the box, job done, we've digitally transformed, right? But at the end of the day, there, there's no end game here. Um, transformation is a constant, it's ongoing. We're going to sort of remain competitive um, within organizations and indeed across Australia in general. When I think about digital execution on the ongoing level, like there's four sort of steps that come to mind for me. Starts off with innovation. So how do we innovate? Then thinking about technology, how do we then automate, do things as efficiently as we can? Um, and then how do we ultimately enable the experiences our people, our customers, our employees are looking for? So I think when I when I consider digital transformation and the outcomes we're trying to get from that on an ongoing constant basis is all about the experience, whether it's the experience from the products or the experiences of turning up for work, for example. So when I think about outcomes, it's are we delivering the right experiences for all our people, both internally and externally? Fantastic. And Murray, in the past, we've talked a little bit about adoption versus creation when it comes to innovation. I'd love if you have a parting thought for business leaders when they're thinking about innovation, uh, how they should maybe be thinking about that idea of adoption versus creation. Yes, definitely. Uh, the person that designs our programming in UTS startups is a economic historian. Um, and very deliberately because we need to design for the economy that we're in and the history that we have. And if you're a entrepreneur or leader in Australia, then your history in Australia is one of technology adoption and adaption to the local environment. Um, it's unavoidable. So I would love to see people give more consideration to that in terms of finding technologies, having pathways for them to be adopted by companies uh, instead of internal creation and to not look down on it either. We've built an incredible economy on the back of that. Uh, I think the kind of shiny bauble syndrome that we get stuck in sometimes is can be fruitless. Those are the three questions I'd, I'd put in people's minds. How are you finding existing solutions? How are you adopting these solutions? And then if you're satisfied with your answers to both of those, then uh, start to talk about creating new internal solutions, but only then. Fantastic. Look, Matthew Boone, Murray Herbst, thank you both so much for joining us on Tech Pulse. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Joining me now to dig a little deeper into these ideas is Maria McNamara. She's the Director of Government Relations and Innovation Strategy at Kindrel. Maria, thanks so much for joining us. A real pleasure. Now, look, you're specialised around the government sector, so I'd love your thoughts on how things are shifting there to encourage new kinds of job-creating companies and how to encourage and support them through grants or perhaps even procurement programs. Thanks very much. So yes, I do. I spend time at all three levels of government and also um, quite a bit of time in the private sector from earliest uh, stages of the startups all the way through to the large multinationals. It's um, an interesting place to be. Uh, and of course, things have changed a lot in the last 10 years. And I encourage anyone who's interested in seeing how much uh, to have a look at the history of the Australian startup ecosystem that was produced by Adam Spencer recently uh, with his team. I think they interviewed about 150 people to capture the story. So these days, there's real support from schools and universities, from companies um, and governments around the country, of course. Governments have played a really important role. They've supported the establishment of hubs like Stone and Chalk and Cicada. They've invested in 
establishment of VCs like Main Sequence Ventures, which has just done the most remarkable job, and they've set up grants programs. To my mind, they've done those preliminary steps, but it's still a little bit of theatre. It's a bit flimsy for my liking. Uh, And I think that uh, governments and the majority of private sector companies still um, are really poor customers of the ecosystem. But there's a problem that can be solved Uh, but it's not being solved quickly enough. So grants are fine. They often come with some strings, which is why, to my mind, customers are better. So we need to test and support and help to scale our own Australian companies because if we don't, um, we're we're helping to test, support and scale other countries' companies, uh, creating jobs in their locations, not ours, and having revenue go back to their governments, not ours. One thing that I wanted to point out was that the announcement by Ed Husick, Minister for Industry and Science recently, gives me great hope. The National Reconstruction Fund is exactly what we need. And I think the thing that he's done that's very smart is that he's focused it on some narrow, well-defined niche areas where Australia can or has a competitive advantage that we can build on. And I think the other thing is that it's drawing on a model that has worked before here and overseas, and he knows exactly what the problems are that need to be solved. And I think um, I've got hope because the Minister's focusing our attention as a nation on solving problems that Australia wants and needs to solve. He's got customers for the solutions. What's really going to be interesting with the National Reconstruction Fund is its leadership, particularly its Board of Governors. I'd really like to see a board that has a global mindset uh, with people that have working relationships with governments and the private sector stakeholders in Australia and across the world so that the door can be opened to new customers. I'd really love to see them be sufficiently literate in the areas of focus so they can probably govern the investments. I'd love it if they had a proven track record of transforming underperforming assets and companies because this is a specific skill. Uh, And I'd love to see uh, diversity in terms of language, gender, ethnicity, expertise and, of course, experience. Yep, that's fantastic. Now, how do you feel that industry and government can do more to connect skills development and then the jobs with that real innovation value? So back in 2018, I created something called the Future Work Summit to focus attention on the fact that jobs were changing. And I came up with a a mantra that I kept bringing people back to, and that was Australians want better paying jobs. They need the companies that produce those jobs. They need the skills to do those jobs. And then we can secure our standard of living. And it seems like a fairly simple mantra, but it It informs so much of of what we're trying to do here. And I think it comes back to being really clear about our ambition and prioritising and acting in the national interest. But I think we also need to do some work in the job matching. It's clear that what we used to do, you know, post the job and wait for people to respond and post the job using language that makes sense to very few, is outdated. So we've got the tech at our disposal to nudge people into new areas. So using data to unlock and to reskill and to redeploy the talent so that people aren't stuck. All of these things are important, particularly when we turn on the National Reconstruction Fund, because we need to marry the two. Uh, We need to be able to find the people, make sure that we're not wasting people's talents uh, 
and make sure that the jobs are being done the most efficiently. That's fantastic. Now, we've noticed that government itself has outsourced a lot over the past decade. So, you know, is there a need to get the right skills back into government directly? Or, you know, I guess if so, where should those kinds of efforts focus? The outsourcing of skills from government, particularly at the federal level, uh, has undermined our ability to deliver the things we want to deliver. I go back to the example of the New South Wales uh, Department of Customer Services and Service New South Wales. If you want to see uh, that transformation done well, we have a living, breathing example of that right here. They began with reform of data, uh, setting up the Data Analytics Centre and the economics units around that. So you had the information on which to base it. Then they set up the in-person, on-premises facilities so that those who couldn't or wouldn't go online didn't miss out. And then they changed the entire culture so that it was one of service. So you walk in there now and things get done quickly, simply with a smile on your face. You then go to the digital experience of Service New South Wales, which is where all of this uh, comes into play. And that digital front end is simple. It's easy to use. And it was done in-house. And it makes sense. If the government can do it themselves in-house, they should. And they turn to the private sector to stretch the bench. So I think uh, what we now have to do is ask ourselves, is what we have serving the Australian people? No, it's not. Because if it was, we wouldn't have the intractable problems 10, 15, 20 years down the track. They would be solved by now. It wouldn't be costing us as much as it's costing us. We wouldn't be as unhappy with some of those services as we are. You think about the services that have been transformed and you think about how great they feel to use and then you ask yourself, why isn't that happening all the way across the board? Maria McNamara, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Pulse. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. For more conversations like this, search for Kindrel Tech Pulse podcast on Guardian Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. The Tech Pulse podcast is produced by Guardian Labs Australia. It's hosted by Seamus Byrne. The Guardian Labs producers are Alison Tanner-Disastro and Jodie Weatherup. The executive producer and Guardian Labs head of content is Justine O'Donnell. Our sound recordist is Dan McHugh. Our sound editor is Mel Chun. And the Tech Pulse podcast is paid for by Kindrel.